I still have things I want to learn as a filmmaker, things that I want to actually, I want to learn and get better at. And I think as long, it's there's always going to be things to learn, but as long as I still want to learn those things and I'm hungry to learn those things, I'm in the right place. I really do believe that Leo Burnett was right when he said, curiosity about life and all of its aspects, I think, is still the secret of great creative people. If we aren't curious and willing to learn, we won't go very far. We talk about this, a useful framework for storytelling, and so much more this week during part two of this conversation with Seth Worley. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. Where is your curiosity pointing? What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. Rise up, artists. Your canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. All right, so we've talked about the tension of the fact that frameworks exist. Yeah. And then we've talked about the value of the framework. So... That sets the stage perfectly. Well then. done. So what what is the framework? It's called the story clock. It's called the story clock notebook. Tell us about it. How does um, it work? So several years ago, you gotta know that's what you want is for me to start a story with. So several years ago. <laughs> no, I was, you know, we talked about JJ. I one of my favorite podcasts for a long time was Jeff Goldsmith did this uh, creative screenwriting podcast. Uh, Goldsmith now has his own podcast, and I forget I always forget what it's called, but where he interviews screenwriters and it's usually right after screenings of a recent film of theirs. Um and he asked really great questions about process and their writing choices to the stories. And, you know, he was interviewing uh, Kurtzman and Orsi, uh, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi. It was after Mission Impossible 3, I think. And this is years ago. And Kurtzman and Orsi were the writers on that. And they talked and they'd worked on Alias and um, they went wrote a lot of things for JJ and with JJ. They said that J.J. at the time like introduced him to this idea of outlining a story in the form of a clock, like looking at like rather than outlining like in a line, like of like B A to B to C, uh, putting it in this circular diagram. So like if if you had a two-hour movie, your your one-hour point would be at 6 o'clock, your 30-minute point would be at 3 o'clock, your 45-minute point would be at 9 o'clock, and so on. Uh, it exists as a way to look at it and see like where your audience is, like seeing your audience's journey. And like here's where the audience wants to f have fun. Here's where they want to feel scared. Here's where they want to be sad. Here's where they want to be excited. We haven't had an action scene in a while. We should probably have one. Little arbitrary things like that. And I heard that and I thought, oh, that's really cool. And I liked that because I uh, love uh, entertaining any kind of nonlinear approach to visualizing uh, something as seemingly linear as like, you know, as screenplay, as a screenplay. But I, I thought that's cool. And then I Forgot about it for years. And then several years later, I was, was watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I was watching it because I wanted to see the pacing of when, of how that story was structured and paced, you know, and like when, because so often we watch movies and we feel like certain events like 
key events we think, oh, that happened probably like 30 minutes into the movie. And if we really sit down and look at it, it's like, oh, that happened an hour in? Like that happened halfway through the movie? It feels like that person's in that movie, in a whole lot of that movie, but they're only in half. Um, things like that. And I wanted to see Last Crusade that way. And I'm watching it. While I'm watching it, I remembered suddenly that clock idea. And so I got this crazy idea. I was like, I'm, I'm going to put this in a clock and see if it, you know what it looks like. And so I started writing down time codes and what happened in each of these time codes. And then I went into work the next day and literally I looked like a conspiracy theorist, like a crazy person because I, I started – like I had all these time codes on these scrap pieces of paper with <laughs> scribblings of wind of like Henry Jones and lo- like, you know, and the grail and like – like I looked like a crazy person and I – uh, drew this circle on my window at work with a dry erase marker, and I and I did the math. And time code math is weird and hard to do. Where you're like, if a movie is like two hours and you know twenty three minutes, you're like, how does that divide up into four? And how does that divide up into eight? How's it divide up? And so like, I did all this math and got it all and clocking and scribbled all the movie around this clock and looked at it. And I was like, well, what do I do now? And I was like, well, I need to make, I'm trying to make sense of this. And I'm trying to see like where the, where the structure is in this. And so I, I look for the act breaks because every movie, not every movie, but most movies you can break into three acts sure. and the acts usually fall around the same places with the exception of notable exceptions, some great movies. But I, I found that break act breaks and I started tracing character threads. Like, okay, I'm going to trace, see the journey of Henry Jones of the dad, like when he enters the story. When he enters the story um, in spirit, like when people start talking about him, like how early people start talking about him in the story and then when he shows up. And I quickly started realizing when I traced these things, there was a symmetry to uh, on this circle I was drawing on that like where people first started talking about, about Henry Jones on the clock. If you look symmetrically down the bottom – uh, half of the clock was where he first entered, like on the on the exact opposite side, on the uh, bottom opposite side of where they first started talking about him was where he first showed up. And subsequently on the opposite side over to the left was where he and Indy had their first sit down conversation, like where they're actually talking and not running. And then right up symmetrically up, up on the top left in the third act was where he gets shot and Indy has to go in and get the grail to save his dad. And it was like these key moments were symmetrical on this clock. And so I started doing this with a lot of movies and and seeing if like this was a, a similar thing. And sure enough, you know, I immediately went to another Indiana Jones. I went to Raiders. And Raiders is a perfect like movie, a perfect screenplay, which is so funny because it was made intentionally as an imperfect movie. Um which I think is great. It was literally Spielberg's exercise in not getting perfect takes and moving on once things were good enough. And yet it's now a perfect film in film history. And that screen, Lawrence Kasdan's screenplay is amazing. It's perfect. But you look at that and you trace like literally where they first introduce the arc and talk about the arc and they open the book and you see the picture of the arc being opened and you know, who knows what coming out of it. Literally on the opposite side of the clock at the end of the movie, uh, is where the arc is opened and we see what happens when it opens up and everything else. And like where Marion, we first meet Marion, she kisses Indy or she punches Indy on the exact opposite side of the clock is where she kisses Indy. And it's like, that's my favorite one. Cause I just yeah. like this. I like the. Okay. So uh, those, so those people or those movies fit onto the story clock. Does that mean that those people wrote those films no. based on that circle? So then no. why does it work? It works because great storytelling has a rhythm and a rhyme to it. Great pacing just like great songs, like aren't all verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, but a lot of them are. But a lot of like great songs have a with notable breaks in the rules. Like 
they have a certain rhythm and rhyme and pace to them. And so here's how it's great for development. That's how it's great for research. It's great for writing down time. You know, you write down time codes and things happen and you, when things happen and you put them in here and then you find symmetry and you break it down and find patterns and structure in the stories you love. And then you have that to compare yourself to when you're in the weeds writing your own story or structuring your own. On the development side, here's how that applies to your work. For me, when I get an idea for a story, I don't get one log line. I don't just get an, an elevator pitch of an idea. <laughs> I, I get the kind of rough, weird, intangible, blobby elevator pitch. Like I, it's one sentence idea. And then I suddenly just start getting a lot of ideas, little arbitrary, weird, half-baked ideas, ideas for entire scenes, for sequences, for characters, for plot twists, for locations, for um, colors, for every element. Like it's all messy and chaotic and disjointed, but it's all firing because it's like, oh, and this and this happened and this could happen and this could happen and that means this could happen. But it's not like a A to B to C to D to E to F G. Like, that's mm -hmm. not the order. Did I say the letters in the right order? I'd suddenly second guess. I don't even know. It sounded right. Sure, let's pretend. <laughs> um, I'm going to listen to this later and be like, I'm going to listen to it later in Story Clock, this podcast episode, <laughs> just to see. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Um, uh, that's a code. That's a code for where to find my boss, who I killed earlier, <laughs> hiding in here. This whole thing is some amazing cryptic code. Um, now I know why you work for JJ. <laughs> right, I know. Too much JJ. The whole season of copying JJ hasn't rubbed off yet. Seth basically realized that too many great story ideas get bogged down in the early stages because the people who have these ideas can see the connections in their head, but have a hard time drawing it all out on paper. The idea behind Story Clock is, what if you had a structure to help you make those connections you feel but can't quite articulate? And what if this structure was, inadvertently or otherwise, the source of some of our very best movies? Is it as literal as... We want these two characters to kiss at this part in Act 3. So that means like across from that is where that character needs to be introduced or there's a breakup or there's tension. Uh, potentially. There's could, something, you're saying it, it has to be something related to It doesn't have character. to. It, it never has to. Never has to. It always can. It's a, I don't know what to do here. What am I doing over here? Oh, I've got this fight scene on a train I really want to do. Well, maybe I should actually set up a train somehow in this sequence. Like That's where the guy goes to buy the train ticket, I guess. guy goes to buy a train ticket. For like, next why, week. And why is he buying a train <laughs> ticket? And suddenly your brain is moving in a direction now that is organic and relevant to your story. You're, you're asking questions that are relevant to what you already yeah, have. That's genius. Well, that's the thing is like, you know, this is my science. The weird, hacky ways that I've kind of figured out to give me comfort and peace of mind and try to hack, like, and try to get through this incredibly lonely and exhausting um thing that is writing, that is writing a story and that yeah. is like growing a story. But you keep using words like growing, cultivate, what was the word you used with your kids? You don't want to like control nurture. your kid, nurture. So you're using all these words that are for living, breathing things. And it's yeah. almost like you're describing a story as this like ball of creative energy that's like living and breathing. Yes. And the goal is not to like come in forcefully from the outside and add to it or control it or try to shape into what you want it to be. Let it continue to breathe and grow into what it's supposed to be. And your job is just simply to cultivate it. Yeah. Otherwise um, you strangle it and suffocate it to death yeah. and it dies. Um, so it's like this intangible, magical thing, stories. And it's like, you know what? Some trees don't stand up on their own. You have to put like a, a rod in the ground and, mm -hmm. and tie it there and keep it there for months at a time to keep this tree going. It doesn't mean it's going to die. There are things you can do to guide, you know, 
its growth in the right direction to support it in the early stages. And that's really what this is. I think that the the bad version of this is going too far and literally like saying, I can't do that because symmetrically I don't have this going on over here, so I can't put this thing here. It's like, no, this is a season where you can follow rabbit holes. Like you, your story is revealing itself to you. You are like an archaeologist digging it up. You are not burying bones like in the sand. Like you were digging them up. You And it's up to and like – you are the variable here. That that's, doesn't apply, but uh, but it, you know you get it. And so like yeah. so years ago, not years ago, but about two years ago, I two things I had I've wanted an app to be able to like on a plane quickly log an idea in a story clock form um, and have it there to go back to and refer to and build on, or at the very least, get it out of my head so it's not bugging me and it's not affecting my other projects. And so I'm not walking around with the weight of that idea in me because once it stops being exciting, then it becomes a burden of a thing that like if you don't go do, then you're failing your potential. Mm -hmm. Um, By logging it somewhere, like I can always come back to it. And if it's great, it'll keep coming back to me. Um, But I want an app to be able to like do this in a plane and not on an iPad, but on a phone. And my buddy Mike Lanier had just um, gone off to this, you know, several uh, week boot camp for um, iOS development and coding. And he came back like, hey, do you have, if you have any app ideas, let me know. And he immediately regretted that statement <laughs> because I came back at him with like five um, and or like 10 and like nine of them were terrible. You know, I even had like parenting app ideas, like all kinds of stuff. And it was like, <laughs> finally someone to, you know, minion to do this work for me. But That's awesome. But I also, you know, but thankfully it was my friend, you know, Mike, I guess I'm not, I don't like uh, hiring minions to do things. Like I like collaborating and it always driven me crazy that I haven't had the time to really dive into learning code and learning development. Anyway, so I was in that headspace of wanting to make an app and a resource for story clocking. Seth had seen enough Kickstarter success stories to figure he could make his own, as long as he had a team who could help make Story Clock a reality once they got the funding. And it was while brainstorming the Kickstarter campaign that another great idea floated to the surface. But at the same time, we had been entertaining every idea we had. And one of the things, you know, one of the things I loved about these campaigns were stretch goals and the various rewards that they offered. Like, you know, there are ambitious campaigns that like offer you there's a tier for the product, a tier for a product and a t-shirt, a tier for the product, a t-shirt, a car, a product, a t-shirt, a car, <laughs> your car, you in the car, you signing the car. Like there's all these things. So we're like, what kind of things do we offer? And one of those was one of those tiers of those like, we quickly create like started like forming a campaign, a strategy for a campaign that was going to cost like millions of dollars. Um, all these physical <laughs> stretch goals and reward, reward uh, rewards that we were trying to offer. But one of those rewards was a, was a like a hipster physical notebook for story clocking. And it was like, that was going to be a, like a stretch goal. And in researching like how much that would cost stuff, we realized like we could turn this around way quicker than we could an app. Uh-huh. We could also like, it's the opposite of the app situation where the more backers that we got, the the more our margins grew. Yeah. And it was like, okay, well, what if we did this? And suddenly it became, it became a physical product. It became a notebook. And suddenly the audience for it became very clear. This is actually fascinating. I had no idea that that's how you ended up at the notebook. I yeah. thought it started with the notebook. Well, I w- like when it became a notebook, a big thing was like the audience. I knew that there was, and I'll use like your audience as a great example, like the story conference, like people who go to story conference was literally something I said to them. Like, and at the time I said story Chicago, cause I, I don't think it had even gone to Nashville yeah. yet. 
and I had been to before when it was in Chicago. And I was like, people who go to this kind of event, they are hungry for something like this that is a tangible, practical product that helps them structure whatever their kinds of story is that they do in their job or on their spare time. That whether it be advertising, whether it be whether they be pastors writing sermons, this is applicable. But I couldn't really explain why tangibly, but it was incredibly important to me that it be targeted toward filmmakers that we literally have the word screenwriters in the description of the product. Um, because for me, this also filled a void that I've wanted to see filled, which is the market for tools for filmmakers is a v- kind of a dry place. There's a lot of tools out there, but there's not a lot of sexiness or style to them. Huge inspiration of mine creatively is Jack White, you know, the White Stripes and Jack, and his record label, Third Man Records, you know, from Nashville. Everyone knows Third Man. And they know yeah. the third, they've been to the shop. He's got a record label, but he's got this shop full of like, it sells records. And it's also got, like, he makes these toy guitars, toy, like, you know, record players, things that celebrate the process and celebrate the art. And a big thing about Jack White, the reason he's such a creative in, uh, influence on me, besides, you know, his amazing art itself is his approach to it, which he's always been very vocal about, is that like limitations and restraints foster better art and foster better material. Like having your key, having that keyboard be just a f- one foot further away than is comfortable creates an ultimate better product. And so he has these products that he makes that are seemingly necessary, maybe not necessary. You know, going back to that whole idea of like something that like exists because it can exist and because of the value that it presents by being existent. And I have wanted. There's just not a lot of rock and roll in the like filmmaking product world, especially in the pre-production and production side. There's also not a lot of tools for the intangible uh, parts of the process of storytelling and, f- and filmmaking specifically. Yeah, I agree. There's tons of stuff that that goes right on the screen. There's tons of stuff for post-production. There's tons of stuff that makes your your final product look great. But there's all this opportunity I feel for the process of. Uh, writing and directing of like working with actors and things. I think there's a lot of opportunity for dumb little product products, big products, like things that literally just inspire you and give you confidence going on set. So the notebook then became this thing. It was like, we target, it's targeted towards screenwriters and filmmakers, but we make it clear how it's, uh, we trust that people who go to story conference will see how it could potentially apply to their work. We make sure that it's, that we trust that they'll find it. And they did. Uh, the product itself became a research and development notebook. The first half has uh, research clocks. On one set of the, of the spread is a grid for writing time codes and events that happen on those time codes. And then there's an empty clock on the other side for you to clock. And then the second half are development spreads, which has your idea pile, like your big box for dropping in those ideas as they hit you. Uh, and then a places to organize them as you're dropping them in, like you have a character box, a theme box for dropping in as you think of, oh, keeping a running tab of characters and organizing there and then having an empty clock to be able to put mm-hmm. those there. And then on the inside covers, you know, I, we, I love field notes and I love that he has the ruler on the inside cover um, and uh, various other little resources in there. And so we wanted to print on the inside covers like, nerdy storytelling resources like mm-hmm. a bridged version like a world a seth worldified version of joseph campbell's like hero's journey we have the art character archetypes there and then in the back we have you know i talked earlier about how hard it is how complex it can be doing math with time codes so we have a time code to page number general like a uh, uh, converter that literally you can go down and see like well an hour 43 that what page that would be and therefore it's like that number those because usually one page 
uh, equals one minute of screen time. It's a lot easier to do math. It's easier to cut up 90, the number 90 into threes than it is to cut up, you know, um, you know, an hour 30 or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and so it's nice to be, you know, so we have that nerdy thing there. Then we have like, I, we literally put like time codes for like average time codes for genres of films, like, or average time, uh, uh, running times. So if you're writing a romantic comedy, like plan for it to probably be around this length and, and then we got jokey in it, and we talk about how long Twister is and how long a sequel to Twister should be, um, <laughs> which I think is eight hours, I think is what it says. Um, but it was this thing that had character. It had wit to it. It had practical application and designed brilliantly by uh, by Michael Lanier as this really beautiful yeah, piece. Yeah, beautiful. And we made it up with the right materials where it would feel like an agricultural, like a utilitarian product that you're not – supposed to be delicate with you're supposed to fold it put it in your pocket carry it with you you're supposed to buy a bunch of them and keep them all locked up and we have places in the front that you can keep track of what all projects you researched in it what all projects you developed in it and date the book so you can go back and reference these things later and so we did the kickstarter for this we spent a year i mean we spent two years total from the time that i went to them with the idea to the time that we finally launched um, and it was imperative those two years that we had the time to research other Kickstarters, study all of their numbers and how many, how much they asked for as opposed to how much they got as opposed to how many Twitter followers they had as opposed to how many backers they had. Like all of these things influenced our choices. And like a week before launching our campaign, I was like, we're going to make nothing. Like we need to cut our, our goal amount in half and convince me not to because if we did that, we would lose money. Um, 12,500 was the bare minimum we needed to make in order to break even supposedly. And we ultimately raised 120,000. Um, I, th- I think I don't hold me to this. I think that's the only campaign that I've ever backed on Kickstarter after the person already met the goal. Oh really? Cause usually there's this like buy-in, like support your friends, help them get to the goal. Yeah. Um, and then every now and then, depending on how close of a friend I am or how much I believe in the project, it's just like, I mean, you support your friends regardless, but then if it's like, ah, I don't know, they already reached their goal. They're fine without me. They're going to get the money anyway. Yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, I, by the time I found out about it and jumped in, you were like, you had already plowed way past it. Um, uh, which cool. says something, I think. Thank about you for backing by the way. Yeah, you're welcome. For real. Seriously. Uh, yeah, I love it. But tell me a story. What's your favorite story that you've heard now of someone using it? Oh, man. Uh, someone used it to plan out the next year of their life, which wow. I thought was very cool. Uh, and someone has used it to plot their year, their like life so far. I don't really know how they did that because I guess so far makes sense because that doesn't imply they know when they'll die. Um, <laughs> Although now they're like paranoid about it because they're just yeah. like, whoa, this happened here and across the clock this happened the, here. Yeah. Does oh my that God. mean that this mark is my death? Exactly. It's that or it's like my life is complete now. Like I really don't know if I can what keep would going. You, what would you do if you actually invented that by accident? And like now people have a way to I would their immediately death. I have a fallback. I would immediately <laughs> say, Hey, we're working two dimensionally. It's like it's it's more like a slinky. Like it's more like <laughs> go to the third dimension and it's really just you're experiencing the same cycle year after year after year. And now you can find new life. Have you thought about writing a sci fi screenplay on the story clock concept All where right. someone realizes they're it. like it's actually real? Like people uh, are clocking something. Of course, something I have, and I've trademarked it, and it's a f- <laughs> mine, and no one can uh, attempt to do it. No, not at all. But now, obviously, someone out there should. Um, <laughs> you know, what's been interesting is figuring out now how to like, besides how this applies to my work, but like, I feel so fortunate now to have gotten to start a business, which is another thing I wanted to do. Like, not just like start a business arbitrarily, but like to have a brand that exists that serves the filmmaking community and serves 
that people put interesting things in the world that may not necessarily be films. And now it's like, well, how do I continue forward and keep my filmmaking career and I continue pursuing in line with this? How do they feed each other? How do they not become two separate animals that like I can't really control? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's interesting doing that right now. But yeah. um, I relate. You know, I'm oh, sure you do, man. I have this thing that I do to make a living, and now I'm serving the storytelling community, and while simultaneously like trying to produce some other projects, and so it's like you have these two things that it's like I I am in this thing, so like I I am an attendee. I'm as much of an attendee of story as I am the director of story. So I'm trying to create this experience, but in many ways, I'm creating the experience that I want to go to and can learn from. And you have to trust that they're feeding each other. Yeah, and you have to trust that like by giving you know the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. which is something that I, I think is underrated. The bare minimum is very underrated. Um, when we do, when we trust our instincts and just let our, and do the bare minimum, we let our subconscious kind of take on a lot of the creative burden and work. And, and subsequently then we free up, we, f- we free ourselves to make great things. And I think when we decide what the bare minimum is by having two big worlds that we're doing, it keeps us in a lot of ways from overthinking things in either one of those worlds. And also, like, they do directly uh, influence each other. We want them to be the same thing so we can just be going to one place every day and working on the same thing. But I think right now we have to trust that this season, there are two separate things for a reason, and there are two separate things that are stronger by being two separate things. You are stronger. And there's a version of this where maybe you do let one of them go or maybe you merge them or whatever, but, like, there's things to learn from having them be two separate things. I'm very wise, and you're welcome for reconciling two <laughs> things in your life today. Um, well, in closing, tell us two things. One, where can someone go buy their Story Clock Notebook? Oh, and go to plotdevices.co. You can buy the Story Clock Notebook in singles, three packs or five packs. You can also buy uh, our new storyboard notebook for storyboarding, uh, for planning shots. It also works for uh, app design and development as well. If you turn it, you know, vertically. Um, the best thing about the notebooks is that they come with a video of you explaining how to use it. It's like a little oh. crash course in storytelling, which they, I love. Yeah, the Story Clock Notebooks come with a, a video uh, that we intentionally shot here, actually, in one of these offices. Um Intentionally, it, that video is a perfect example of how I cannot do anything normally. Like, I cannot just <laughs> shoot an instructional video, and I don't want to give away anything about it. I want to let people discover it. But yeah, that's um, great. It comes with that, and we also have these fun filmmaker enamel pins and uh, and pennants, which make really great gifts for your filmmaker friends or relatives uh, over for Christmas this year. Yeah. Plotdevices.co. You can see my work at sethworley.com. You can follow me on Twitter at awakeland 3 d which don't ask. It's from back when people, before people use their names and their <laughs> usernames, um, long ago. And everything you buy from the website comes with a really cool plot devices sticker. It does. Which I have seen out in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of a cool thing. It's just like, whoa. And actually, um, I've seen it Maybe like four times now. Really? And two of the times, one was at another conference and one was on a plane. And those two people, they got them at Story. They bought it. And I was like, hey, plot devices. He's like, your hair is together oh, in Story. Killer. Like I came to Story this year. And I was like, oh, yeah, you must have bought a notebook. That's and, uh, awesome. Yeah, so the stickers Hooray, are out. I've making friends. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I've seen it on like friends and families, like phones yeah. and stuff. And that means enough to me that like you didn't throw it away. <laughs> you know, you actually put it It's great. Stuck the little banner something. on the product that it sh- it's all really well done, man. Well, I mean, that's thankfully we love uh, house industries, invisible creature. We love a lot of these like artists and companies and vendors that like they make products and things that um, celebrate 
design and celebrate art. And it's they like, care. They care. <laughs> That's really what it comes that down to. That is the thing. It's like really <laughs> what we believe is like if you, you know, we shipped our to our, our Kickstarter backers. We didn't tell anybody that we were shipping this, but we included, you know, a little how-to card, but we included this stupid fold-up poster of our mascot, Jingles the Cat, Jingles the award-winning screenwriting cat, yep. uh, in front of the typewriter, which is from the desktop wallpaper in the Kickstarter video. So it's a little inside joke for backers, and it says writing. If this cat is doing it, are you? And it was designed. In, Micah designed it intentionally. This like '80s style, like Hello yeah. Kitty, you know, Trapper yeah. Keeper style. And the other side says, "Get rich or die writing." And it was like, for us, we know when we order something from you know one of these illustrators we love or one of these design companies we love, and you get that free stuff with it, you feel loved. Like you feel. It just feels like like love, like somebody like yeah. generously gave something to you and surprised totally. you. Totally, and that feeling of like providing that is one hundred percent what what we're about. Yeah, so. that's awesome. Well, my second question was simply as concisely as possible. What is you've learned all this stuff as a storyteller? What's your advice to pass along to other storytellers? Any final words? You've given them so much great advice already. What's the little nugget that you want to drop in here at the end? You know, somebody asked me recently if I had considered that maybe I may not be supposed to have like a filmmaking career as a filmmaker. Maybe my role is actually making tools or products for resources supporting the filmmaking community. I kind of surprised myself with the response. By answering it made me realize I still have things I want to learn as a filmmaker, things that, that I want to actually, I want to learn and get better at. And I think as long it's there's always going to be things to learn, but as long as I still want to learn those things and I'm hungry to learn those things, I'm in the right place. And so I guess my big advice is like not only to like stay hungry for learn to learn, but constantly evaluate where am I, where I'm at right now. Are there things about the thing that I'm doing that excite me to learn and that I want to get better at it? If not, like I think figure out where was the last place that I felt that, you know, and were something then chase those chase those things and find ways to chase anything that is interesting and hungry to you to like not just do or experience but to actually get better at and you know feel humble and bad at and learn um i don't know yeah that's, that's fascinating someone asked me a couple of years ago basically are you okay if your greatest accomplishment is not the goals that you succeed at but how you raise your son it was basically like one of those, like, oh, yeah. what if your kid's more successful than you are? Yeah. Like, are you okay with that? And it really like puts things in perspective and it forces you to go, is this really about me or is this really what I'm giving to the world? You yeah. Know? And if my son is the one that does it or my daughter is the one that does it, it's like, is that as cool? And like, and it's a harder absolutely. question than you think it's, uh, yeah, you think it, it really should be. is. Your obvious answer is like, gun to head. Yeah, of course I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know, but no gun to head, you're like, well, look, like, like yeah, that is that it's complex and it's it's hard to have to accept that. But at the same time, in no world do I ever want to like have more than my child. Like I want my children to have more than yeah. me, no matter what. But yeah, at the end of the day, like I really do want to. So Seth has this little quirk that used to bother him. He says he used to get these really good job opportunities, but instead of taking them, he'd pass them along to friends of his and let them take the job. And he wondered if this urge came from a place of insecurity, like he was afraid of being too successful, until he heard a speech from Neil Gaiman, a famous sci-fi writer who talked about the importance of looking at your life goal like climbing a mountain. Other things are going to come up, rabbit trails, you might say, and you're going to have to pass them by. 
because they're just distracting you from your real goal, getting to the top of the mountain. Like that perspective helped, helped me tremendously in navigating the opportunities I get or the uh, choices that I have um, in my career and life and all the various ways that I've diversified, you know, my creative life of like picking ways to spend my time. It's like, is it between me and that mountain? Like, does it put me in that direction or is it a lateral movement behind me? Going back to that whole generosity thing of like lifting someone up before you, unbelievably rewarding experience. The feeling of like at being at peace with like, this was not an opportunity for me, but it's, it, it's an opportunity for me to provide this to somebody else and then seeing them thrive and kick ass on it and knock it out of the park so unbelievably fulfilling and the mo and not in like a, I am such a good friend and I provided, <laughs> but in just this like feeling of like seeing your friends and seeing your, you know, like seeing other people just like thrive mm -hmm. and feeling like going back to it. The themes of here is that like, just like I did with Jurassic Park and with Kickstarter campaigns, like feeling you had a part in providing that opportunity to thrive and that feeling you provided that joy and entertainment, making something, providing something that people derive joy from or they grow from is ultimately rewarding. So yeah, if my son, I absolutely want my son to go on and accomplish way more than me and I want to do everything I can uh, to provide that. And that's kind of, you know, why the story clock notebook exists is like, I want to provide that, this tool that helps me to the community and help them, you know, lap me in my career, you know, 10 times. Yeah. So that's awesome. Cause I'm a really great guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a gift to the world. So thanks for doing it. I am a gift and to the world. The Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>